Hi, it's Sarah Hodgson. Welcome to another episode of Life Unleashed. I'm here with my sweet dog, Peekaboo, and I'm going to talk about something that's very, very close to my heart today, and that is the difference between positive and negative dog training. I consider out with the old, in with the new. And to be honest, I don't even like the words positive and negative, but that's how people kind of embrace the concept of training that encourages a dog's emotional well-being and a type of training that's more punitive and authoritarian. Interestingly, it echoes a lot of what's gone on in the past century with raising children. We're just a step behind. But I want to start today with a memory, an old memory and a very, very recent memory. The old memory began when I was about 18 or 19. I was getting involved in dog training and I'd go to these meetings in New York City and there was this very well-respected trainer very well respected, big guy, came in the room with a chocolate lab, a little bit smaller, slight, and the dog jumped up. Because she was nervous, she was licking her lips, she was very gentle, and he immediately stood up, strung her up on a chain collar, spun her around till she nearly passed out, and then pinned her on the floor, and then sat back down like nothing happened. I, I, I didn't even look at what the other people were doing, but I, I just completely lost my breath. And I could almost cry thinking about it. I was 19 years old. Dog training wasn't much further along than a chain collar. But to me, it was as though he was doing that to me. I mean, that's how deeply and viscerally I felt that dog's fear and pain and shame. So anyhow, the dog probably never jumped on him again, but... Um, you know, it was so traumatizing. Something clearly snapped in that dog's sense of trust in that moment. So that's pretty bad, obviously. Most people would agree. So then the other day, I was, you know, I'm local, I'm north of the city a bit, and I went into a local veterinarian to say hello, and I was talking to them, and I, I had to go upstairs through their office to get something. So I walk upstairs, cute little Frenchie, bulldog, runs out, silly little dog jumping all over me. And then a shepherd, um, a Belgian shepherd, came out, woofed a couple of times, ears pinned back, tail under the belly, which is odd because it's a very confident, very noble, very intelligent breed. So I went down to reassure her and kneeled down, hands below her head, eyes cast to the floor in a non-threatening posture. And when I put my hands underneath her chin, I noticed literally strapped so tightly to her neck with enormous prongs on either side of her trachea was a green blinking e-collar. It took my breath away. There are over a dozen countries that have outlawed e-collars. E-collars are possibly the fastest way to enact a change in your dog's behavior, but they do so at the cost of your dog's soul.
people, please think hard about your end goal with your dog. Is it to have a robotic relationship where the dog behaves and must spend the rest of their days strapped in a collar that cuts off their ability to swallow and breathe comfortably? Is that the goal? If that's the goal, you can turn off this podcast immediately. But right now, I'm going to talk to you about the new science of modern dog training and what the American Veterinarian Society of Animal Behavior states is cruel and ineffective way to train or manage any animal. They literally are writing the Bible on how to communicate and train an animal in the safest way, in the ways science is showing is effective. The problem with the negative reinforcement, the e-collar training, is you might get a behavior, but your dog lives in a constant state of fear or frustration. Take the collar off and the behavior that you desire disappears. And the negative behavior may even be twice as bad because now the dog is finally free. And there's such an adrenaline rush that comes from freedom. So what what's going on here? It's like politics. It's so divided in our country. E-collar people claiming that it solves all problems. They call it a vibrating collar, a TENS collar, a citronella collar. If you put a collar on your dog that needs battery or charging to work, it is going to run contrary to your dog's natural state of being, natural thought process. Let's talk about a recent case study from my private practice. I was actually the second trainer these people reached out to. The first trainer they had in um, immediately brought out a prong collar and a shock collar and began to explain the virtues and values of using this approach with their dog who had just bitten the housekeeper. The person took very little history, interacted not at all with the dog. In fact, the dog was in a dog pen in the back because the trainer didn't want to meet them until there was these apparatuses uh, attached to the dog. Needless to say, even though this trainer cost money, these people said they were not comfortable with this approach and asked the man to leave. Thankfully, the dog never met the person and the dog never wore these e-collars. Next, they, they heard that I was an expert in aggression, called me, first question they ask is, do you believe in e-collars, which I do not, do you believe in prong collars, which I do not. Um, we talked a little bit about my philosophy and, uh, you know, in the next week I went over to the house. Mind you, the dog's breed, based on a DNA test, was a Weimaraner Rhodesian Ridgeback 50-50 mixture. This dog was so magnificent. 120 pounds, stoic, a gorgeous head, silver, um, roan color. So when I arrived, 
I did ask that they be out in the yard. When I got out of the car, I got out in a very relaxed manner. I stood back facing Scout, who was, again, across the yard. What I asked the people to do is to hold the leash and wait until Scout stopped barking but was still paying attention to me to simply say yes and give him a treat. This went on for about three or four minutes, at which time Scout was very relaxed, playing the look at the trainer game, look at mom and get a treat. Look at the trainer, look at mom and get a treat. So then they had a little wall outcropping. I simply sat down with my back facing Scout. I was comfortable that he was not um, still triggered. And I asked them to simply approach on a loose leash and let him sniff me sitting on the wall. I didn't face him. I didn't hold the bag out because I knew those things would be threatening to a dog. Front facing, facing a dog. Even my facing the owner with a dog who's protective or territorial can be seen as threatening. So within a couple of minutes, he came over. He got to sniff me. Every time he sniffed me, I opened my hand with a little uh, piece of chicken in it. All was well. We went inside. Here's what I found out in the intake part of the session. This family had just moved to California. The house they moved into was being painted. There were still boxes all over the place. Their time shift was still a little wonky, meaning they all had jet lag and they were all stressed out. And they welcomed in the housekeeper into the kitchen without thinking Scout would have any reaction whatsoever. Well, Scout did have a reaction. She was carrying a bucket and a vacuum and a broom, all this stuff into the house. And he barked at her. She was afraid. He's a very big dog. When she continued to move forward, he leapt out and nipped her hand. It's what Ian Dunbar would call a level two bite. It broke the skin, but the severity was low. She did not have to go to the hospital. So to me, while you don't want to encourage biting, it is a very understandable situation. Stress is like filling a glass of water. A dog can only handle so much stress before they reach the tipping point. And Scout had reached his tipping point. These people didn't know anything about dog behavior, were kind of tired and stressed out themselves. So the first thing I helped them do is kind of unpack the situation from Scout's point of view. The first thing I pointed out is Scout is three years old with no bite history. Why is that important? Because if Scout was six months old and he bit somebody, a six-month-old is like a kid in fourth grade. And as they mature through their high school years, which happens in the first couple of years of a dog's life, they're going to get more intense without a lot of intervention. So being three years old, no bite history, friendly dog, accustomed to warm weather, um, backyard. Here we have cold weather, boxes everywhere, constant painters in the house, what I would call the perfect storm. So once you have cortisol drip, meaning once the dog's already stressed by one thing, the drip gets more pronounced as you pile more and more things on. So the first thing we did is we created this, what I call a womb. We created a safe place. We put some towels over the windows. We put a nice, um, little radio machine so we could play piano classical or soft rock, a little reggae for Scout. 
So Scout was pulled away from the major hub of activity. We erected a four-foot-tall gate so he could still observe it. And then one of the first exercises we did together, and this family did when I left, is when people come in, we stood back. It was like this recreated hallway mudroom area. We stood back in that area with Scout and did the same thing we did when I came in. Scout would alert bark. In the beginning, it was frenetic. We'd wait for him to process what was happening. Then when he paused the barking, but was still aware of what was going on, we'd say yes and give him a high value reward. So now we're coupling positive associations to people coming in. We're not asking Scout to be out there making a judgment call. We're not spurring this hyper arousal that leaves him with so much adrenaline that the reactivity comes fast and furious. And we began there. Needless to say, within two visits, Scout is now comfortable with people in the house. We are still holding him back in the mudroom when people are first coming in because that can trigger high-level excitement. And we're well on the road to creating a situation in home life where Scout feels comfortable to be his old, friendly self. To summarize what we did is we helped Scout process the situation at Scout's rate. We helped Scout by being there, by letting him rely on us, by staying calm, and by using familiar words that he understood. In the long run, because he could process, because he could reference us, when he's met with a similar confusion or situation that simply doesn't make sense to him, he has the format. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work with my person. I'm going to rely on my person because I don't understand what's going on. On the flip side, had they gone with the e-collar trainer and shocked Scout the minute he barked when somebody came in the door, the behavior would have stopped. If you ask me, it's a lazy man's approach to dog training. But the behavior would have stopped. The problem is, so would Scout's ability to process. So would Scout's trust that they could reference, that we work together, that we could work together. So would Scout's understanding that when you're home and people come in, they're okay. It just would have stopped the behavior. But the behavior would have come right back if Scout, Scout wasn't wearing the shock collar. God forbid somebody came in when you were upstairs. Scout didn't have his collar on or maybe the battery was dead. There would have been an immediate reaction because you become reliant on the tool that controls the behavior instead of the dog become reliant on working with you and being with you when situations arise. I just want to say something about board and train because these people ask me about it. A lot of people, do I need to send my dog to a board and train? Generally speaking, many board and trains, most board and trains use e-collars, which again, return a spiffy looking dog that behaves beautifully in their environment, but doesn't really carry the nuances of your environment. For example, the people 
had a new housekeeper and they had painters in the house and they just moved from California and there were boxes and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, often I just did a case where um, a rescue dog is growling at uh, toddlers and the woman asked me, you know, should I send them to board and train? It's not a training issue. The dog is beautiful. It's training lovely. It loves to learn. But when the toddlers climb on the dogs or the toddlers put their hands in the mouth to take a bone or pull the dog's ears, the dog reacts to that. It frightens the dog. Dogs are not stuffed animals with a heartbeat. It becomes a toddler training issue. Really, not a dog issue. Anyhow, if she had sent that dog off to boarding school, I can guarantee they're not going to have toddlers climbing all over the dog. And the problem would have manifested itself immediately as soon as the dog was returned home. So boarding trains, not necessarily bad. If you're going to seek one out, make sure you find one that does not use an e-collar method. And they're not really great for dogs with extreme behavior. A lot of people say, oh, my dog has this bad behavior. And I just want to say, you know, bad is a, is a human construct. It's a moral judgment placed on given behaviors. And let's talk about, quote unquote, bad behavior. What is it if it's not bad? Where behavior manifests is from a rising level in your dog's adrenaline. That sounds fancy, but it really isn't. I want you to think of it this way. If there is a sudden truck, very loud, pulls into your driveway, you're going to get a rise in adrenaline. There's a loud truck on your property. You have to interpret. You're curious to see what it is. Maybe you're feeling a little territorial. Why is a truck on my property? And who's in there? Okay, that's a rise in adrenaline. So when there are shifts in everyday routines, your dog will also have a rise in adrenaline that they use to meet the needs to figure it out. When stuff happens that your dog doesn't understand, the doorbell rings, somebody comes in, um, you know, they're shouting in a neighbor's apartment, there's a dog barking, their body fills with adrenaline in order to meet the demands of that situation. And when they don't understand the situation, that adrenaline meets with a sense of fear fear of the unknown, or frustration. Frustration at not being able to get to the, the situation because I'm on a leash or because I'm behind um, a gate or because the situation is out of reach. Those all causes a, a dramatic rise in adrenaline. Now, think of adrenaline like a pressure cooker. So a pressure cooker fills up with pressure. It has to have a release. Hit a button, you release it. Okay, so adrenaline fills up like pressure inside a pot. And the dog needs to release the adrenaline. And dogs have different ways. Some bark, some chew, um, some spin about, some run back and forth. What they're doing is releasing the adrenaline. A fearful dog might pee or might run away. They're just coping with that rise in adrenaline. So if you look at behavior for what it is and you process that your dog is not a robot, but also that your dog is like a child in that they want to have a parent figure, a leader figure to help them process information and how to handle it, then you understand the point of training. 
Training is simply teaching your dog a few words so that when they're stressed or when they're uh, reacting inappropriately, you can redirect their behavior with words, with positive encouragement. You can make help them make sense of a situation or at least help them understand how best to take care of themselves in the situation. So for example, um, a dog that's barking at the door, if you open the door, that level of adrenaline, that barking at the door resulted in the door opening, which is kind of what they wanted in the first place. So does that solve the problem? Uh, no. Does it guarantee a repeat performance? Absolutely. Then the dog gets labeled as bad when the dog is not bad. It's simply you're reinforcing their behavior. Behavior to your dog is just natural reaction to a circumstance or a situation. Your ability to cope and reason and understand your dog's reaction and how you can best respond to it in order to reduce the level of hyperarousal is what you need to focus on. And it's what I focus on. If it's done negatively and you shock the dog, the behavior will stop, but it's not going to go away. It's not going to increase their level of trust. It's not going to leave them feeling joyful in their everyday environment. It's, it's cruel. It is cruel, period. I love working with dogs. I love helping people brainstorm, whether I'm doing it virtually or in person or in class. I love helping people brainstorm. How can we help your dog translate and process this information in a way that leaves them feeling safe, not threatened, not hyper aroused? And I got to tell you, it's like solving a puzzle and it can be fun. It can be fascinating. It should feel interesting to the people and exciting for the dog because dogs don't like to feel hyper aroused and confused any more than you do. So let's wrap it up. And just before we do, I want you to think, you know, what's your goal in having a dog? I know with me, it's to bring joy into my life to have animals that play with each other, that I can share. I love to go to the library and the nursing home. I really enjoy my life with animals. And I have dogs and cats and rabbits and tortoise, a lot of animals, and I love them. And that's my goal is to have them feel safe, for them to trust me, to be able to communicate with them in a way that is fun, that brings joy to both of us. So I want you to think about your end goal. You know, remember, relationships take time. It's a lot like parenting. Dogs like kids go through different stages. Dogs like kids don't always behave the way you want them to. Like there are times I think it would be so easy to strap a shock collar on my teenagers and just zap them when they gave me back talk or talked to me disrespectfully. But but what would that do? I built a whole life with these people and they're going through a phase that is typical. And the saying on my refrigerator reminds me that I'm on the park bench 
there on the roller coaster. And if my goal is to raise loving children who can process thoughts on their own, reference me when they need to, and live independently, I've got to be patient. I've got to be patient with their development. I've got to trust in their innate goodness and do what I can to bring out the best in them. So please, if you've listened to this podcast until the end, remember that negative reinforcement training, although it may bring a fast result, can also run the risk of destroying all the good you've created so far. So be patient with your dogs, be loving. And together, let's you and I make this world a better place, one dog at a time. Thank you all. I'll see you next week.